Hey, this is Adam with Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin in the event of a zombie apocalypse. Armed with only food, water, and a crank-powered Victrola, what five records would you want? Oh, and we'll get to know our guests along the way. Happy holidays, everybody. Um, I know it's officially the holidays because I was driving up in the mountains the other night to play a gig, and I cried listening to Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. They say The Clash is the only band that matters, and that might be true, but uh, Fairy Tale of New York is definitely the only Christmas song that matters. Anyway, it's it's been really fun um, recording and sharing my live stash, and I'm especially grateful to those of you who have helped out by leaving reviews or even just ratings in places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, everywhere. Uh, so uh, reach out and we'll mail you a free Mile High Stash sticker as a stocking stuffer. I'm really I'm excited about some upcoming episodes that feature uh, people from Slim Stasta's Auto Club, Devotchka, Murder by Death, Leftover Salmon, and... Um, Los Lobos, um, the Lumineers too. Um, but today's episode is special because it, it features Ted Thacker, who is also known as the Red Tack and was in a really uh, a crucial Colorado band called Baldo Rex back in the day, back when Boulder was weird and kind of punky. Uh, if you're in Colorado music and you don't know Ted, I don't know if you're actually in Colorado music because he's a really special guy who just seems to leave um, a really positive impact on everybody around him. And uh, it was really fun to sit down and ask Ted his five albums. This is Adam, and this is Mile High Stash, and our guest today is Ted Thacker, who I'm excited to learn more about. Uh, I've known him for as long as our kids have been in school because they met in kindergarten, and Ted is an incredible songwriter. We'll see what he says about this, but I hear equal parts David Bowie and Black Flag. And he was in a band called Baldo Rex uh, that was around when Boulder still had an edge. And uh, he was in a band called uh, a Veronica as well. And and um, has been known as the Red Tack uh, for a while. And um, we're sitting here in Boulder, Colorado. And... Um, howdy. Howdy. I think that Ted is originally from this area is that right yeah yeah i was born about 800 yards from here oh wow yeah (laughs) Yeah, i was born at boulder community right down the street one of the things that ted is known for is is a song that um debochka plays fairly often uh that's called um, i cried like a i cried like a silly silly boy. boy yeah yeah so the first thing I wanted to ask you before we got started is when was the last time you cried like a silly boy and and what did it feel like? Well, 
I think um, I'm I cry like a silly boy. It's a uh, it's uh, Sherwood Anderson. But I think that statement, I cry like a silly boy, is really perfect because Sherwood Anderson was trying to capture the idea that a man cannot cry, and he's calling the boy silly for crying. Mm, yeah. And that is what, that's the phrase right there. Not just I cried like a boy, but it's judging the boy. <laughs> I and, have this whole new image of that. The day I left you, got on my bus, I knew I'd see you, you knew I'd see you. So let's go back. Um, you were born in Boulder. I was born in Boulder at the community hospital. Yeah. Where did you live when you were so growing up? For my first house was a house I don't remember on Bluebell Avenue, and then growing up, going to grade school was Flatirons Elementary. Mm-hmm. I have a question for you for later. Okay. But right now, what we're gonna do on this show Uh is um you know put you in a theoretical position where Where, there has been a um you know um a zombie apocalypse night of the living dead type situation and you escape somehow you're completely alone so you so you know laura bell (laughs) it's me (laughs) talula not around and um for you i think this is especially easy because I can imagine, imagine where you are, because you would be <laughs> in, in my your cabin. little cabin up in Ward, because that's the kind of place you would escape to. Yeah. And the only thing um, that's different, really, is that there would be a crank-powered Victrola yeah. in the cabin. Five albums, five vinyl albums you yeah. can take with you. So what is your first choice? I was imagining that scenario where I would have all the albums I could possibly imagine, but mm. only be able to get five. But uh, yeah, number one is unequivocally for me, and it always has been and always will be, There's a Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone. Yes. To me, that album, uh, I sometimes I compare uh, the art, artistry of an album as um, almost like climbing a mountain and like the difficulty of it and the, just how personal and how just musical and just how much of a cohesive piece of work it feels like that album is a mind-blowing piece of work. Oh, but, yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of the greatest um, pop artists of all time, but also one of the most successful of the yeah. 60s, early 70s. Yeah, I mean, so. all this thing. And that's, that's why that album, I think, is so special to me is because he was flying high at the same time, he dug in and found these insanely dark subjects. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it was you know it's it's a tumultuous time in the United States. Just the darkness that was happening, but the bright light that was Sly Stone was incredible. His his talent on stage, mm-hmm. his ability to just take these massive audiences 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden and just make it a lot completely alive he was like one of the first two to like use just incredibly flashy dress and just I mean some of the stuff he wore I'm, I'm always like where the f did he get that back in those days I mean people were obviously tailoring things for yeah. him and um so but anyway that wasn't the thing that struck me it was this idea that he had created this piece of art that was completely cohesive that stuck together from front to back and it has this 
giant arc that goes through it. And I think that the two songs that really stick out are, are Time and then Space Cowboy, which comes mm. up right after it. Because Time, that song is so oddly dark, but it talks to you as though it's, he's almost talking to you as though he is Time. And he's explaining to you how sad he is to be time and how like, but also exuberant and like forward progressing. Like that's what time does. And man, I just, the lyrics to it just are so fucked up and he's just fucked up the whole time. And then he goes into space, space cowboy, which just seems like this complete reverse. It's looking at him as a person and he's not belittling himself, but he's totally making fun of himself in this dark way and it it's a it's something that i think that almost no artists are able to do you know and i know yeah. great artists can look inside and it's something that is is almost unachievable yeah so yeah that's my take on that record <laughs> you were talking about um your first band was a band that dress up like kiss we dress up like kiss yeah kiss. and lip synced yep along my question for you was, um, what show did you see in your youth, you know, that inspired you and 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 was audacious? Well, and... it wasn't a show that I actually was able to go to. Mm-hmm. My, my dad did take me to see Neil Diamond, and, and I, I loved that. And I got to see a lot of live performances, but they were all uh, like Nutcracker and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. That kind of stuff you see as a kid. But specifically, my whole group of friends, as were across the United States at the time, were complete KISS fanatics. And Destroyer had come out, KISS Alive had come out, and those two albums were just like our basis for almost our existence. And that's how I learned how to play guitar, was just to try and play all of Ace Frehley's mm-hmm. solos. And I did, that's fine. They're, they're not very tough. No, but <laughs> that's great, what's but awesome about it. And uh, anyway... It was this TV show that we, all of us, all of my friends decided to stay up for, and it was called Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. That was like the first, and then I got to see Kiss maybe two years later, but they had already gotten to this point where they were on. You were like 14 when you saw Kiss? 12. You were 12 when you saw Kiss? Yeah. My, what was that like? My dad brought us to it. Um, we bought tickets. He was begrudgingly buying, like, got us the tickets and That's took still us, pretty us great the show. In McNichols Arena, Kiss in 78. Wow. Yeah, you're talking about the height of oh, their yeah. career, the height of just their pyrotechnics and all of that stuff. Do I you just remember, remember the, the opening song? Was it um, Rock and Roll All Night or Strutter or what? It was probably, yeah, it was probably Rock and Roll All Night. But they did cl- all the classics, and I think that it was, I, I'm not positive. No. Yeah, so, okay, so big thing I remember was Ace Frehley's guitar. It had this light inside of it. The smoke would come out and all that stuff that he'd do, but it had this light inside of the pickup. I was probably, we got good seats. I was 15 rows back from the stage. It was McNichols. Did your dad go with you? Yeah, yeah. he stood down in the... He couldn't stand it. He put fucking uh, stuff in his ears and stood down in the aisle down below. Just couldn't stand. He couldn't stand being with all of the. Me, we were with just some dirtbag dudes. It was me and my friend Eric, 
And we had to stand on top of the backs of the seats to see because everyone was standing up. And dudes were passing weed to us. And I don't, I can't remember. I don't think I smoked, but um, I think my friend did. But that that wasn't a big thing. But the whole, the air was just filled with weed smoke, and it was just like smelly dudes. It was mostly dudes in leather jackets, and then me and my friend Eric, these two twelve year old kids. There was probably at least two hundred and fifty twelve year old kids. Like, was that the night that you said, "This is what I want to do"? No, 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 not at all. I had already been playing guitar. Yeah. At this point, for you know two years, and always yeah. and had advanced past. Right past that, um, but no, we I watched that, and then my dad made us leave before the encore, and that for Kiss is the the core of their the show. Finale. That's when the the risers mm-hmm. come up and the Panther comes out of the drum set, all this shit. And I was I was pissed at my dad for the for the next five years because. He wheeled us up out of the place, walking up the stairs to go out as I was watching Kiss do, like, the biggest thing they'd done the whole concert. And, and you're looking back like a kid with separation anxiety. Yeah. Like grasping for... Listen, hearing, yeah. you know, uh, you know, rock and roll all night coming out, or Detroit Rock City That's my coming thing, through the yeah. doors as we're walking out of the... Yeah. to go get in the car. Okay, so you're 12 at the Kiss show. Yeah, anyway. You start your first band, but you're not actually playing. No, no. Now when we are playing. So now I'm playing guitar, and okay. I'm the singer and main songwriter. What is this band called? And when, This is when called is The this? Plague. And this is what year? This is, well, yeah, 1978. Yeah. Yeah, 1978, 79, because our first show was pretty amazingly. We'd gotten to the point where we had 10 songs, and we, we were... We wanted to be like a Kiss band. We wanted to be like a a dirty Detroit rock band. We thought that's what we were. Like the Stooges. Yeah, we didn't know who the Stooges were yet. Right. I didn't know who Iggy Pop, I didn't know any of those. And of course, I wasn't going to find out about the New York Dolls till quite a bit later. Yeah. But if I had, it would have blown my mind. We were like the Ramon, we were like Ramones, Incredible Shrinking Dickies, uh Rod Stewart and Kiss. Those were our like yeah. our influences at that point. I, I think there might have been a couple other. Oh, Queen, Queen mm-hmm. and Judas Priest, and um, we wanted to be more like Judas Priest and Kiss. But we got on stage and our rudimentary abilities. The drummer, he was Kurt. He was at the time, but he could keep a, a solid, steady, hard pounding rhythm. He was he was fine at that, and I was gr- good enough at guitar to rock something out and play a couple solos and sing. You're talking about 12 age year- of 12, you have 10 original songs in your band. Because that, that yeah. is I, I had probably written 25 or 30 songs for that band at that point. Wow. So yeah, we'd written, when The Plague played our first show, uh, so punk had just gotten huge in the United States. It was prior to... California punk. It was like right Sex when, Pistols, Ramones. Right when Sex Pistols. Mm. Well, the Ramones, though, were a separate thing. I don't think right. very many people think of this. Like, we loved New York rock, and we considered it that. We we loved Blondie. I mean, Blondie and the Pretenders, fucking amazing, yeah. you know? But the Ramones were this thing already. You know, I, right. I don't think very many people realize that Ramones were out touring 
playing shows long before the Sex Pistols got there. Oh yeah, four it, years before. Yeah. yeah. And so, but you know, in my my brain and my mind and our social scene, the the punk rock wave that came from the UK was way later. The Clash, the, the Damned. Yeah. Sex Pistols. Yeah. And but the Sex Pistols were the one, obviously. Yeah. They were the ones that put it over the top and you know, even the album, that album is great. Even though now when I listen to it, I'm like, man, there's, it's homophobic. It's. Oh, there's a lot on it. I mean, there's the abortion song and, and there's a song that makes fun of the New York Dolls. Yeah. That's, and yeah. there's that. Yeah. So but the I listen thing to about that. that, that album, and I'm, I'm guessing you agree with me, is that when I was growing up, you would hear the metal kids say, well, the Sex Pistols are only famous because they couldn't play. You listen yeah. to that record. And it's the great band guitar is playing. amazing. Yeah, like the bassist. Yeah, who on that record is not Sid Vicious. It's yeah. Glenn Matlock. It's actually <laughs> fantastic. Sid Vicious couldn't play the bass, but yeah. he's not on the record. So, so that was so our first show was right after Sid Vicious had killed himself. Hmm. I mean, like a month after. Yeah, and this show was called the Sid Vicious. Memorial Dance mm-hmm. in Boulder. And, yeah, it was the and it was called the Sid Vicious. It was the annual Sid Vicious Memorial Dance. And in like, <laughs> we so, should bring it back. We'll bring it back. <laughs> so it was at Gate Nineteen at CU Stadium at, at Wow at a uh, Folsom Stadium. How it old was, were you, Ted? I was. I think I was still twelve. I might have turned thirteen. How do you book a show? Who knows? Set it up there when you're 12. I don't know. I don't remember because I think it was Kurt that did that. So Kurt wow. was pretty aggressive. He was the drummer, and he was the one that was always trying to get us into places. And we did. We got into some. So that our first punk show, we played with the Dancing Assholes and the Dead Weasels and the and the Plague. And I don't know if there's a tape out here of it, but the guy that the guy he was a he wrote for this punk magazine mm-hmm. and he interviewed us he put us in the magazine all this stuff and we were these little kids and i didn't realize it but i think they were like glorifying us like we would a group of little kids playing right. a, like adult music and um we were flashy we'd jump around we'd do you know i'd do pin uh you know windmills with my guitar mm-hmm. our bass player would jump off of his amp and uh, we'd play our crappy little songs, and people ate it up. They loved it, but it was punk rockers mm-hmm. at the time, and it was guys with like, you know, five rings in their nose. There was one dude at our first show that had an upside down flag tattooed to the top top of wow. his forehead, and another guy that brought in two girls on chains. You know, <laughs> this is twelve year old kids that are seeing this for the first time. Anyway. From wow. then on, that we were just like, yeah, I guess we're punk rockers, you know. <laughs> okay, second choice. Um, you're in this cabin, and I mean, for you, like I said, it's easy because you can think of your own cabin that you literally have, yeah, up in Ward, and you, um, you got Sly Stone. So what's next? Uh, Amy Mann, I'm with Stupid, and this was like a period of her life where she had obviously had insane, intense fame for her band till Tuesday Mm -hmm. and they were great. She was a great songwriter back then. Um, But it was based on her looks and her, her 
poppy, the poppy shit that mm-hmm. she was doing. And of course, the hit song. And I don't know if very many people, I have never experienced this, but it seems like it could be pretty devastating to have your whole repertoire and artistic persona be based on one piece that you've done. Right. One little sliver of all the shit. And so she came out with I'm With Stupid, and it seemed like she had nothing to lose. It just seemed like, fuck it. I'm just going to write these songs. Who cares? I'm putting these on, and these are going on the album. And the album, at the same time, is what I you know, I think about. An album has to be cohesive. Like, I, at this point in my life, I have not written a cohesive album. Like, you my albums think? have a beginning and end, and they have songs and all that stuff. But... I still haven't come up with that one album that is this period of time in my life that sticks. So this one, for me, to me, it seems like for her, she's sweeping up all of this debris of her chaotic life and putting it into this pretty, it's dark, in it, but it's got beautiful little hooks, all this stuff, and her classic way of singing, her little close where she's feeling like she's confiding Mm-hmm. And like with you, she's t- talking about this thing with you, the listener. You well, know? you would definitely want that in the cabin. You would want, yeah, you know. yeah. And it's so personal and yeah. so. And then the guitar work on the album is fucking fantastic. But you know, you don't want to know you're stupid now. Third What's choice. my third? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm going to need more than five. No. Just, these are <laughs> okay. the rules. Okay. Um, in the record store where I was dashing to try and find the record, I was, I was trying to find Sign of the Times, and I couldn't find it. You so, couldn't find it. Okay. It wasn't in the same right place. So I ran to the second, my, my other choice, and I was like, I got to find, and, and, and it's Horses. Oh. It's Patti Smith Horses. And so this album came to me at a time when I was completely open to anything. Cause I'd, I'd, I think I'd been through a dark relationship and gotten broken up with. And mm. I was, I was going out with this new girl and she was this weirdly fantastic person, uh, deep poet. Um, she was, she always wrote poetry and she had she, one day I was at her house and she was just playing this record and I knew who Patti Smith was. Everybody did. She was famous enough, but it was just this deep, beautiful fucking album that like Mm -hmm. and this is vinyl this is vinyl on somebody's stereo you know and i'm just laying in her bed to listen to this thing i think she'd gone to go to school or something Mm -hmm. that day and left it on i listened to the whole thing all the way through back and front back and front and i just blown away and that's another one of those records where it's just this deep like sadness mixed with joy mixed with this personal reflection that I think makes a fucking perfect album. Horses, I think, would be... Yeah. What What are we on now? Three? That was your third. Third. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then it's got to be Hunky Dory. Oh, that's number four? Number four. Okay. Because, okay, although my first David Bowie experience was very, very dark and personal... It was what another was your one. First, What's first that? David Bowie experience. It was it was with Diamond Dogs. So my yeah. cousin 
would sleep over at my house. And did he, he have the original where you could see the dogs? The the I, he, he the original foldout before they censored it was David Bowie as a dog, and the dog had a a, a dick a dick. Yes. So when you fold it out, that's that picture. And I know the story about that with the dog, and yeah. he actually got a real dog. I'm sure. Took those composite photos, and then the artist did those paintings. Right. That's the one where he's like sitting like uh-huh. this, and but inside the record, the paper, the the thing that the record's holding. Back in those days, you pulled that out, and it had all the lyrics and mm-hmm. all the song uh, people that played on everything on the inside. That's yeah. one thing we lose from this tech- technology now is just all yeah. this information while you're listening to the music. I think is. I was at a party in in Denver yesterday, and a friend of mine was talking about the show with me. Uh-huh. She's an artist. She's amazing. And she said something that I hadn't thought about. She said that she would pick albums also based on the art, you know, because... Because it looked cool. Vinyl records. And I instantly thought, well, maybe I would choose my original copy of Dark Side of the Moon because it's got two huge posters and all these stickers and things in it. And it's like, oh. well, I would have that in the cabin. I could hang it up on the oh wall. That would be a good thing to take. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was one of those records that I really had to think about, Dark Side of the Moon, because yeah. Pink Floyd at that same time, like mm-hmm. I said, dark, um, so he not only had, now I'm remembering, he had Diamond Dogs, he had Dark Side of the Moon, and Wish You Were Here. So mm-hmm. Wish You Were Here blew my mind. Yeah. But so, so did Diamond Dogs. But yeah, the, you pull the album out, and it's got this weird, dark... A utopian sort of city right exactly. like in the yeah. in this like kind of green light and so you're hearing david bowie's voice and he's mm-hmm. describing this place yeah. and then he goes into all this kind of personal stuff will will you rock and roll with me and like yeah like it's just it, it it's a it's itself is kind of a dark personal record but i don't think and then and then i found fucking ziggy stardust and it, yeah. that blew my brains out but i feel like those two records, Diamond Dogs, even though it's more cohesive, and then Ziggy Stardust, to me, even though it does have one theme, it still feels like pieces that David Bowie has stuck together. You know, they flow into each other though in a way that that it's definitely it feels like one song. It's definitely one of my favorite Perfect albums, but yeah. that's why I think Hunky Dory for me beats it because Hunky Dory feels more humble and more. Mm. Like, like he's giving you something again. He's giving you something of his own, yeah. and you, the listener, have to like, like you're there with him. Whereas Ziggy Stardust feels like, like this is fucking my like. It's almost like a chef giving you something that you'll never understand how they mm. made it. Right, but you're just like, oh my god, great. that's yeah. fucking delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas I think Hunky Dory is like he wants you to be with him during that that creation and it's yeah because there's all these weird little sounds of recording in that album like him laughing and yeah talking and all that stuff and that's something i've adopted i, I love that i love being able to hear the artist in the leaving studio that on the album what's that leaving stuff like that yeah on the album. yeah you don't yeah. take it out you don't you don't polish it up yeah um, one of the cool things about uh, hunky dory as well is that um my experience with that album being 15 is my second David Bowie album um, after Ziggy after Ziggy and um, (laughs) David Bowie had handwritten notes um, 
I'm inside uh, the track list. And one of them is a queen bitch. And it says for VU. And I'm like, whoa, what does that stand for? So it was <laughs> really? his, um, he was very inspired by Lou Reed yeah. and the Velvet Underground. So as a kid in Pittsburgh or in Boulder, uh-huh. you're just like, well, what's that? And you go out and find out. You find, find out, out what it is. Yeah. I actually didn't know what that song was about until much later, yeah. until I was probably in my 30s. When I'm, and then I'm imagining him being David Bowie, the the iconic sex symbol, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, fashion icon. He was everything, rock star, yeah. fashion icon, still being kind of jealous of this other man's abilities and presence mm-hmm. and wanting to personify it and be, be that queen bitch, you know? Some of Hunky Dory, I think... Uh, you alluded to it's it's actually very humble and i think at, at that time in his life he had made space oddity yeah. and was seen as a one-hit wonder oh wow oh yeah and he was he was seen thinking, as a one-hit wonder thinking well well a lot of people don't realize space oddity came out in 1969 in coordination with the moon landing and so so it stands a kid. so that song did stand all by itself it didn't yeah. belong to another record collection that's what i always not at first, but there was, you know, that album, uh, Space Oddity, which has um, uh, Memory of a Free Festival, some good things on it. Um, you know, but by the time you made Hunky Dory, uh, you know, and you can see some of that in what I'm talking about, that the handwritten uh, yeah. notes in there. And, and there's, you know, Song for Bob Dylan, there's yeah. Andy Warhol. Yeah. And I think he was very... Uh, Warhol. Warhol. <laughs> it, Especially about America, I think he had uh, these heroes, Lou Reed and Iggy and other people, and he thought, I'm never going to be like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe, you know, the next record is Ziggy Stardust, and maybe that was him saying, well, I might never be I might. Wait, this, but so, I'll wait, just make Hunky Dory up. came before Ziggy? Right before. Oh, okay. It's the same band. So that means, that means a lot more to me, too, because then... Cause he probably did. He he stepped mm-hmm. it up, and I bet you anything. He, I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but he probably he must have met. This must have been the time when he was meeting Elizabeth Taylor, and he met Lou Reed, and Lou Reed probably said to him, "Dude, you're the fucking shit," you know. And that probably gave him just. It probably mm-hmm. puffed him up, but knowing Bowie, and how amazing he was, he used that for his art. Mm-hmm. He used it to say, "Okay, I'm gonna elevate myself now, and right. I'm gonna become." the best that I can be and fucking create Ziggy Stardust, which is obviously one of the greatest rock albums of all time. But I think the reason why I think it's more stuck together is that he puts Suffragette City on at the end, Mm -hmm. which is almost like, and then "Eh, here's the hit, you know, like, and it was, it was a huge hit. He tried to give it to Mott the Hoople. I don't know if you, you know about that. He tried. No, I don't. He, that was the first song he wanted them to do instead of all the young dudes. Yeah, he yeah. was like, "Can you guys do this?" And they were like, "No, this song doesn't sound anything like us." And why they would think all the young dudes was more like them was weird to me. But <laughs> Hunky it, Dory, Ziggy Stardust, and Aladdin, Aladdin Sane have the same band. Oh, so they're all um, they're all Mick Ronson and and, uh, and yeah, and Woody Woodmansey, and I don't know the bass player's name. So that's another uh, thing. Like Mick, yeah. Mick took me from Ace Frehley. To, yeah. to to Mick, like I learned then I learned like sonicness and 
the ability to fit in the song, not just wait for the guitar solo and then spaz out. Yeah. You know, like to be melodic. Like that's what Mick Ronson did. Mm-hmm. He he added his melodies and his little instrumental parts throughout the whole song. So you hear Mick yeah. like influencing some of the Soul Love has a lot of that. It's insane. I love yeah. the way he plays. Okay, so I loved San Francisco. I loved living there. I loved the artistic flow that was there. But the, I was constantly trying to break Baldo Rex up. I was constantly mm. trying to separate myself from it because I, fe- I felt like it had run its artistic course. I yeah. felt like, I, and I was always feeling like this. I was always feeling like I had gotten to the end of what we were trying to do. But Phil would always pull me back in. He would always be like, "No, man, let's let's keep, let's keep going, let's keep doing this," and so I moved back to Boulder. I I fell head over heels for this girl. I'd gone back to Boulder for like maybe a week, stayed with my mom, but I fell head over heels for this girl, and I I was like, "I gotta spend the summer with her at least," you know. And so I came back and did spent the summer with her. Had the time of my life, one of the best summers I've ever had in my entire life. And I was away from Boulder Rex. I was away from all that from everything, trying to get us gigs. Mm-hmm. I, I think the other thing that was hard for me was that I was always the manager. I was always the person that was getting us gigs, getting us radio play, getting us all that stuff. No one else in the band has ever done that. I know what that's like. Too. Yeah, I know, I know you do. So, because, and, and it's a drag. When you, mm-hmm. get the, when you get the disappointing email, it does deflate you. And, mm-hmm. and after you've done it long enough, you the, it, you kind of it's a bumpy road but there's yeah. some that just stick with you and like make you not want to do it anymore you're just like mm. oh man i'm done so there was a lot of that oh man i'm done this right. reinforcement of like your art's not good enough stay yeah. away from my club that kind of thing the gatekeepers are always mm-hmm. like that yeah. they're like why why should you play my club well because this and then they're, they're like nope yeah. Um, and that happens all the time. That's that's a way of life in this business. That's that's the way you have to do it. But it does get tiring. Yeah. And then if you don't believe in your art, that's where you start to try and fold up the tent and go someplace else. Anyway, I went back to Boulder for that summer, had a great time, moved back to San Francisco, lived in my our bass player's house, mm-hmm. and Baldo Rex was great. We were having an amazing time. We were... We were playing big, bigger shows. We were opening for people that we, you know, we admired, and playing pretty good crowds. But at the same time, I was still just brain dead as far yeah. as like going forward because I wasn't seeing us doing anything new. I wasn't seeing us like progressing. Um, so I moved back to Boulder, and Phil stayed out in San Francisco. I think for a few, a couple, maybe two years or something like that. And so the band was put on hold, but then he moved back to Boulder and me and him started playing together again and I was refreshed. Yeah. So it refreshed me and we started playing our old material. We got a little band together here. We got um, Dave Willie, who is an amazing musician. He's he's in a bunch of bands, um, uh, Lygia Mare and um, uh, Hamster Theater are two of the ones he's in. Oh, and he was in Thinking Plague. Um, mm. Just one of the best musicians I've ever played with in my life. He became our drummer. I think he was just like, yeah, sure. You guys sound interesting enough. Let's let me play drums. Yeah. And he, he was, he just added this ballet 
thing to us. He made us this insanely incredible band. And we added Tom Sprinkle, our bass player, and we became a band. And then after a little while, he got tired of playing or what something something occurred. I'm not sure what it was. Yeah. He had to quit the band. And he moved away, actually. He moved out of the country. And I was devastated. It was one of the worst times of my life because I was just... These are breakups. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was a personal mm-hmm. breakup. And I was super sad. But I had been seeing this band with this amazing guitar player named Tony V um, play around town with this drummer, John Call. And... Um, is this Veronica? No. This he was just he was playing this bit, guitarist played uh Tony V. I'm trying I'm trying to remember the name of their band. It was an amazing name. Crap. It was so amazing, why don't I remember it? <laughs> I'll try to remember it. Anyway, um Venus Blowtorch. Venus Blowtorch? Venus Blowtorch was the name That's of their cool. band. Yeah, they were great. And I'd see him at parties and I'd see this guy, John mm-hmm. Call, playing drums. And I was like, dude, that's the guy. That's mm-hmm. the guy. That's the guy. And one day he's walking down the street. I think he's working at Abo's and I'm working someplace down there on Pearl Street Mall. Mm-hmm. We cross paths. I'm like, hey. He's like, what's up? And I'm like, uh, do you want to play drums in Baldo Rex? He's like, I, I, he probably was like, no. I'm mm-hmm. sure he was like, no. <laughs> but eventually he said yes. And we play, we practice. And that's when we became that kind of harder edge. Because I always wanted a punk rock drummer. I always wanted somebody that could play fast, hard, and play, keep up with my guitar playing. Yeah. And he was. He was perfect. He was like that. And so that's when we went forward and just started playing, recording. We came out with our first album, Baldurex, Perilda Silicon Elmas, which is a Turkish phrase from a, a book of, uh, of Pink Floyd lyrics. Hmm. <laughs> it's shine on you crazy diamond in Turkish. Wow. Um, so that we recorded that, toured that, had plenty of fun times, all yeah. kinds of fun times, just r- radical fun shit. Um, uh, that record was probably like maybe three years before we started recording the next one. And I was the same way at this point. I was back to being like, this is bullshit. <laughs> we're not doing anything progressive. We're not. Yeah. We're not going forward. Wanting to break up the band. So at this point, I was like, let's just record all of our fucking songs. And so we did. We recorded like 20, 23 or 26 songs and put them all on a record and called it I Eat Robots, I'm So Sad. It came up with that. And that was a pretty big success. Put that out on this record label, small record label from here called Schmo. And they had some connections. And they were pretty good at keep, get, keeping us in the flow. Mm-hmm. But this was right at the time when Nirvana had broken and so everybody was looking for that like kind of flashy cool you know if you if you if you weren't sonic youth and cooler than them like you weren't going to get very much attention so baldo rex is really sticking out like a sore thumb at this point because we're goofy Mm -hmm. but we're fast we're we're just this completely different music but we're still playing big shows we're opening for some big bands when we go out on the road we open for a packed house uh, at the in Seattle at this giant theater there. I can't remember what the name of the theater was, but it was it, the theater was full of two thousand people for us Baldur Rex to get on stage. But they th- this was girls like waiting for their hot boy band to get on stage, and it was MXPX that we were opening oh, for. Oh wow! And um and they were nothing but confused by us. <laughs> what the fuck is yeah. this? This guy in a tutu and a you know brawl on stage anyway 
we we had a great time and i was still at this point trying to break the band up and then we just had all this tragedy happen our lead singer's girlfriend got in this super horrible accident where she was put in the hospital for months and it kind of separated them out and so this is where the band just by default you know by default sort of and my pressure you know i wanted to break us up uh, this was where we broke up so yeah it was a breakup under bad circumstances it was terrible we should have carried on at least a little bit to kind of see if we could have done something c- to come out of the tragedy but we all moved away Every, you know john and phil the lead singer and the drummer moved to austin and i, I think the bass player moved to rhode island or something so that was the breakup yeah and so I just had to play music on my own and I thought, God, this is really, this is what it is. And I started writing my own songs again Mm -hmm. after not writing my own songs. And over the years came up with the enough material to come out with an album. And I decided I just, I have to do this at some point. I have. And what did you call that? That, well, at first it was called Swing Wobble. Mm -hmm. Um, but then I was like, ah, that's not, I don't like that name very much. And I still, I don't, I don't really like the red tack very much, but it's been, it's such a name that I've carried for this long. So it's, what do you call it when you take a, I took my name and I jumbled up the letters and it. Oh, it an anagram? An anagram. Yeah, yeah. So it spells the red tack. That's awesome. So my name, Ted Thacker, is the red tack. So, and I thought, eventually I'm going to want a band. I'm not going to just mm-hmm. want to play by myself me because it's not enough for me yeah i need other musicians to come along and lift me and play with me and so anyway but that album i was like i'm doing it on my own so i crowdfunded it got the crowdfunding and it's mostly just friends people that i know really well it's i don't have a fan base at all um i i really don't have any fans i just have friends that think my music's good and um and so they funded that record, and I came out with it. It was great. I played all the instruments. Mm-hmm. I think I played something like a hundred and something instruments on the album. Wow. It, it's all listed on the back. Well, my the, the producer and engineer for the record has this insanely amazing studio down in Denver. It's a mess, but it, it looks like I describe it like the Millennium Falcon. Like there's just so much stuff, and it can go so fast. Yeah. It has all these instruments, but you have to like kick them to get them to start, you know, because they're old, like super old school Hammond mm-hmm. and just like a, you know, real Leslie sitting in the corner. Just everything is authentic. And so as a musician, you go in there and you're like, <gasps> you know, you're like, I want to yeah. play that. And so, so I let's did. talk about the new record. So then, okay. So yeah, I, I, I played those. I played that album. That, that album did pretty well. Uh, critics liked it. And so I thought, okay, I got to do another one. And I crowdfunded it. And then COVID happened. And so everything shut down. Everything, everything shut down. So it took, I mean, it took two years to, for me to actually finish this thing because yeah. it just kept jumping, jumping, jumping. And What's I kept, the album called? This one's called Judy. Okay. It's actually an older song that I wrote about Boston. Mm-hmm. It's about a woman in Boston who was breaking the heart of my lead singer of my band, Phil, at the time. But also just, she was fantastic. She was the lead singer of this band um, called Salem 66. Just dashingly beautiful. And when we were 18, 19 years old, she was 30. So she was like a woman, you know. And she would come to our parties and just like 
freak us out because she was this like mm. you know she was like a movie star to us and um years later back when i was remembering our life i remember her and i was trying to find her and i couldn't find her and i still can't i still don't know where she is i don't know you know where she so i wrote that song yeah. and that's to me the most outstanding part of the record is that song and that mm. feeling that feeling of remembering past yeah. like in your past and trying to romanticize it and be part of it anyway so it's taken me it's taken me two and a half years and you know i don't know if you know this but like so many vinyl shops have shut down yeah like the the big vinyl place burned down during that time it was just horrific it was just like anything that you could think of that would stop an artist especially of my like level and skill like navigating it from putting a record out, everything happened. Every roadblock along the way. I almost yeah. just put my hands up and said, hey, I'm going to, to all my funders, like, I'm giving your money back. I can't do this. But I kept pressing forward, and I kept doing a new, you know, recording here and there. And eventually this drummer came into my life. He, he'd been a friend of mine for a long time, but just an acquaintance. I didn't know him that well. Like one time I went out, was I was on the road trip, to play a show out um, east of him, and we visited, and we had a great conversation. And then one day he just called me. He's like, "What? Let's play some music together." And he did. We did, and it was like, "Oh shit, this can be a thing." And now I can have a band, and that's why I've been playing shows live, yeah. is because he's just he was super aggressive about it. He was like, "That's kind of what I need is other people in my band," because I'm always. <laughs> And this is sad, but in my career right now, I'm always willing to give up. <laughs> like, because I've done enough, I feel. But you haven't actually. No. And at this point now, putting out this record with this group of people makes me like, okay, the next one. And so yeah. I feel like that's a good feeling. You're like, excited to share this album so, in particular with people. So this album, Judy, I yeah. think is a great collection of the songs that i wrote in between um the last record and this one but they still it is still not such a capsule of my life that it doesn't span a whole bunch of it but it is really personal all the songs in it are super personal songs inner relationships with my friends some of them that don't know they're in the songs so all of my friends are in this album all my life is in this album so i think it's a really good album although like I said, it's not that one cohesive piece of work. Um, I think that I still have yet to put that out. So anyway, at the Lion's Lair, I'm going to be giving that vinyl out to people, and hopefully they'll like it as much as they like the last one. So Yeah, man. Yeah. I've got Last choice. Okay, last choice is going to be my hardest because it's the one that, like, you have to... When you get to your last choice and you get to your fifth album, and this is how I imagine it, I've gotten to that point in the record store that I'm being chased through, and I'm imagining myself at Albums on the Hill, by the way. And I can't remember if Albums on the Hill has an, has an exit out the back, 
but I'm I'm pretty much thinking the zombies or killer things or whatever they are coming mm-hmm. down, and I've run through the record store, and I'm now cornered, and I have to choose my last record, and I'm lamenting, just like anybody else, all the records I didn't get to choose. Okay, yeah. and like I saw Remain in Light, but I was like I can't I can't reach it. It's over there. I can't get to another Green Day. I can't get to Astral Weeks. I can't get to any of these albums. And finally, I get to the back, and I'm like, oh, fuck, there's two John Prine albums there. Which one? The Tree of Forgiveness or John Prine's first record? Mm. John Prine's first record or John Prine's last record? To me, they're both just fucking amazing. Yes, And let me just try and think. Oh, my God. They're coming after you, Ted. I know. They're you right gotta... there. I'm picking his first record. It's, I'm picking it. I'm going to go yeah. with it. Like, oh, even though, fuck. Tree of Forgiveness is just, oh, my God. Final answer. Yeah, John Prine's first record. Just because, again, that is this, he was 24 fucking years old when he put the record out, which means to me that he was writing these songs when he was like 22, right. 20, 21. He was playing them in a little club in Chicago. Was it in Chicago? A lot, yeah, a lot of those. And Chris Christopherson or something came in and said, mm, yeah, mm. I think so. Yeah, it was Chris Christopherson that was like, dude, mm-hmm. you need to record these somewhere. Yeah. And I think he recorded them in a real Nashville studio, if I'm not, I'm not sure. Not mistaken. Somebody paid for it, obviously. And then of <laughs> course that's John Prine. And then his next record is him sitting in the you know, a convertible the cover mm-hmm. of him's convertible Jaguar yeah. with his feet up. So John Prine is, it sounds like somebody who, who in this situation of isolation and, and being, um, uh, you know, maybe lonely and scared, he's a friend. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. To me, he was all by himself when he wrote his first album. By himself, unequivocally. Like, to the point where he was in his own room dumped by his girlfriend i mean some of the lyrics on there you know kathy was cleaning the spoons like that Mm -hmm. scene where he just like says hey man want to hang out tonight and she's just like cleaning the spoons and just saying no man this is so just like oh it's incredible that somebody as as young as he was had such wisdom because i i don't know that i'll ever get to that no, me neither. Was on, on that album, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why. That's why. That's we have giants, right? We have David Bowie, who who on Hunky Dory was like you say, humble and wanting mm-hmm. to belong. Yeah, and then all of a sudden belonging. So as artists, we always want to be val- validated and belong. But at the same time, we have the art that's coming out, and. And for me, all my entire artistic life, I've been like, this sucks. Does it suck? You know, <laughs> I'm like, but at some at some point, I listen to my song and I'm like, okay, at least I like this. I like to listen to this song. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a good song. So I think other people want to hear it. And they might not. They might think, fuck, this is the most cloying garbage I've ever heard in my life. But but one, all it takes is one person. You got your five records. Uh-huh. You don't know what's going on in the world. You just know that you're temporarily safe, at least. And um, you get to bring, while you're escaping, in your case, you're at Albums on the Hill, and uh, luckily it's still open, which I wish it was. And 
the zombies are after you. You get to choose one item. It could be anything in the entire world. And as long as you can carry it on your back. Uh, okay, that's another one where I have to choose between the two. Can't be a person. No, I know. Because all the people are dead. Um, it's Maybe. G- it's going to be either my Les Paul or my B-25. So it's going to be it's going to be my my acoustic, my Gibson, my acoustic Gibson guitar. I would think it would be an acoustic because yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> you wouldn't have anything to plug the electric. Guitar. Well, you can still play a, a, a Les Paul with without any electricity, but it ain't yeah, gonna it sound would, like a Les Paul. It would be my acoustic, yeah. Okay. I would hope that there'd be some strings in the case. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then I would hope that there would be more people later. <laughs> that would be really sad if it was just like nope I escaped with my five albums and my guitar now I just have to live up here <laughs> at least I'm not that young at least you well, got like, John Prine Amy Mann Patti Smith you know yeah David Bowie and the, the the one big one that I would really really miss that I left off of there Sign of the Times yeah it, like I don't know I, I just don't I feel like you can't do without Prince. You made so, your choices already. I know. Yeah. Thank you for being. I, I thank still, you for being. I reached here. back and got Sign of the Times. No, because no, I didn't. saw it no. on the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm probably gonna go listen to Sign of the Times right now, just because fucking a. It's, it's one of the best albums ever made. Let's and, do it. Then Prince. Let's say goodbye. Okay. To the listeners. Okay. Listener thank you very much for having me. This is awesome. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, that was Ted Thacker, who has a new album under the Red Tack moniker uh, called Judy. And um, he'll be celebrating the release of that album this Saturday night, December 17th at the Lion's Lair in Denver. I'll see you for another episode of Mile High Stash on Monday, as usual. And by the next time we meet, I'll officially be the father of a teenager. That'll be super fun. Um, Yeah, my kid's birthday is tomorrow. And the holiday season is always birthday, Hanukkah, and Christmas time for us. So it's pretty crazy. I will see you on the other side.